you're there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, turn with me a couple of pages over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, just real quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, and I want you to look at a familiar verse we've been looking at over the last several weeks, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, if you're there in 1 Corinthians 7, just a few pages over, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. And we're going to spend the majority of the beginning of the sermon in the books of First and Second Corinthians. Uh, so make sure you uh, stay there, even if we leave it. Make sure you, you keep your finger there. And we're going to finish the sermon in the book of Proverbs uh, this morning. So just kind of letting you know, that'll be a, a, a clue when we're almost done, when we head to Proverbs, all right? Second Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse number 14. These are verses we've looked at. Uh, a lot in the last several weeks, but let's look at them together again. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen. The Bible says, "Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people." We've been studying this idea of separation over the last several weeks, and we've been talking about this, and, and it's illustrated here well in 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, you know, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? How can you unite righteousness and righteous, unrighteousness? How can you unite light with darkness? How can you unite Christ with Belial, Christ with, with Satan? He says, the, the, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? He says, these things don't go together. You can't unite them together. And then in verse 17, he says, wherefore, and the word wherefore means for that reason or for this reason, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. We've been talking about this idea of biblical separation. God commands us to be a holy people. And in order to be holy and maintain holiness, we must be separated. Now, that doesn't mean we go buy some property somewhere in the middle of nowhere and, and, and you know, build up walls and physically separate ourselves from from people, because from the world, because God also called us to be the light of this world. God called us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. But when we're talking about stuff, and that's clear throughout the Bible. We saw that in the book of John. We'll see that here uh, this morning, how he's not telling us to physically leave the world. But what he's telling us is that my life and your life ought to be different than the world. When we started this series, and if you, if you, if you haven't been here the entire series, I would encourage you, don't leave this morning without grabbing a CD back there with the first sermon in this series entitled, uh, Be Ye Separate, where we kind of give you the context and the foundation for this entire series and what we're talking about. And we ask you this question. Remember this question? If you're on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Is there, is there enough evidence in your life to be able to say, hey, this guy is a Christian? Because God has called us to live a separated life. Last week, we talked about consumption and alcohol and how we had to live a separated life in that sense. This morning, I want to deal with the subject of relationships. And sometimes what we'll do at Verity Baptist Church, instead of just preaching one sermon on, on a subject and try to squeeze everything into that sermon, we might take a subject like separation and study it over uh, several weeks to get a thorough understanding of what the Bible is talking about. And in 2 Corinthians 6.14, I want you to notice the first phrase there. The Bible says this, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I want you to understand that in the Bible, the primary application, and it's not the only application, but the primary application in regards to living a separated life from the world unto Christ is, is, is that of relationships. Notice he says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The Apostle Paul is using an illustration here, and obviously he was speaking to an agricultural type uh, society where people understood, you know, 
farming uh, analogies, and maybe that's not exactly the world you and I live in today, you know, in, in, in the society that we live in, but a yoke would be a bar by which two animals were coupled together in order to work together. Often you would take two oxen and you would put a yoke that basically connected these two animals so that they could plow a field, or maybe you would yoke together two horses or something of that nature, and you were uniting animals in order to be able to work together, and the idea was this, that, you know, two is better than one, is what the Bible says. And if you've got two oxen plowing a field and one gets kind of tired and maybe slips up a little bit, well, then the other one's there to kind of hold them up. And the idea is that when you yoke together, and here's what you got to understand, you and I were, com- were created for community. We were not created to be islands living by ourselves. We were created to be yoked together with other people, to be yoked together. But here, Paul teaches us a very important principle about relationships. He says, hey, don't get unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And, you know, I want to apply this in different ways. For those of you that like to take notes, uh, point number one this morning is this. In the practice of biblical separation, we must practice biblical separation in the area of marriage. Let me apply it, first of all, to marriage. Now, here's what you got to understand. There is no more permanent yoke uh, in, in human life than that of marriage. And here the Apostle Paul says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The Bible teaches that believers should not marry other unbelievers. Why? Because we are not to yoke ourselves up in order to perform a work or to perform a a job, you know, with someone who is not saved. And, And I especially want young children to just listen to me right now. We're a family integrated church. That means we got the kids right here in the service with us. And I want you kids... And teenagers and those and young adults that aren't married yet, you you know, you haven't taken that step. Please understand that the Bible teaches that we are not to yoke ourselves together with unbelievers. You need to marry someone who is headed in the same direction that you are. And if you are saved this morning, if you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you are guaranteed a home in heaven, not because of any works that you've uh, you know, committed or not because you live a good life, but because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation, then you need to marry someone that's headed in that same way. And so often Christians will have problems within their marriage. And the problem is this, there's a believer married to an unbeliever. So the first thing I want you to understand, especially you kids. And if you kids aren't listening, I want my kids. You know, Joshua, Joel, I don't know where they're at. They're somewhere around here. Elizabeth, Lydia. Lydia's only one, but she should listen up anyway. You know, don't marry an unbeliever. It'll cost, it'll cost you a lot of heartache in your life. Marry someone who is saved. But even further than that, because I think sometimes as Christians, we, we kind of make that the, the, the number one, you know, criteria, make sure you marry a believer. And then we kind of just leave it at that. But you know, every day that I pray for my children, every day that my wife uh, prays for our children, and our children are young, eight, six, four, uh, one, almost two or whatever, and um, our children are young, but every day we pray for their future spouses. And you know, not only do I pray, not only does my wife pray that our children will one day marry a believer, marry someone who is saved, someone who has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, but you know, what's important also is that you marry someone who is spiritual. I want you to notice what the verse says there, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 14. He says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 
Usually we focus on that word, unbelievers. And we say, don't get yoked up with an unbeliever. But I want you to make note of this word. And if, if you're not married this morning, if you're a young person this morning, you ought to underline this word. It, unequally. Do you see that? It says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The advice I would give young people is, number one, not only don't marry an unbeliever, but number two, don't marry a believer who's not right with God. Don't marry a believer who's not spiritual. Because look, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're on fire for the things of God. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you love the things of God or love the Word of God or, or are going in the same direction that God is going. The prayer that I have for my children is not that they would marry someone who's saved, but that they would marry someone who's saved and loves God. Not to be yoked up with someone who's not their equal. One thing I'm so thankful for in my marriage is that I have a wife who is as, you know, sold out to the things of God and as committed to the things of God, if not more committed to the things of God than I am. And so often I I feel bad because so often I see wives struggling because they have a husband who may be saved but is not spiritual and he won't take that lead. He won't take the lead of being the spiritual leader. He won't take the lead of leading the family, you know, in family devotions or leading the family to live for God or do right. He's saved and praise the Lord for it, but he's not spiritual and she loves God and she's on fire for God and she wants to see her family do something great for God. But you've got someone with you that, yeah, you did a good job. You didn't marry an unbeliever, but you were unequally married. So often I feel bad for guys. I see these guys, they have to baby their wives. The Bible says that a wife was created to be a help meet, not a hindrance. And I want to just challenge you young people, you kids and teenagers, you're far away from that idea of marriage. I want to just, just please, just listen to me, just write this down, just put it in the back of your head. Marry someone who's a believer, yes, but also marry someone who's your equal spiritually. Marry someone who loves God as much as you are. Marry someone who wants to read the Bible as much as you do. Marry someone who wants to go soul winning as much as you want to go soul winning. Marry someone who's equally right with God as you are because God does not want us to be unequally yoked together. Yeah, with unbelievers, but you know what? Don't get unequally yoked together with a believer either. Don't just make this the one, as long as they're saved, they're good to go. It's like, okay, they're saved, but, you know, they've got all these character issues. They have all these character problems. They have all these, these, these you know, issues in their life. Hey, make sure that you marry someone who's your equal, all right? Now, let's talk for a second about uh, if you're already married to an unbeliever. And this, this morning's sermon is going to be maybe a little less of a sermon, more of a Bible study, but that's all right. We need to study God's Word together. You're, you're, go, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. That's where we were started this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter number seven. Look at verse number 12. You say, okay, well, I'm not supposed to marry an unbeliever. Praise the Lord. I'm not supposed to marry someone who's not my equal. Good. But what about, you say, well, Pastor Venice, what about those of us that are already married to an unbeliever? What if you're already married to someone who's not saved or someone who's not spiritual? What do you do? First Corinthians chapter seven and verse number 12 says this, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother have a wife that believeth not, He says, look, there's a brother, meaning they're part of the brethren, they're saved, but they have a wife that believeth not, meaning she's not saved. And she be pleased to dwell with him. So she's not saved, but she doesn't want to leave. She doesn't want to get a divorce or get separated. She's happy to be married. She doesn't mind if he goes to church, or she doesn't mind if he reads the Bible. She doesn't mind if he goes soul winning. She, you know, she doesn't believe herself, but she, she's okay with the fact that he's a believer. And it says, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, notice what he says, let him not put her away. 
Now, the term put away in the Bible is basically our word to get a divorce. Look at verse 13. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. All right? So the Bible doesn't say, you know, oh man, I got saved and my wife didn't get saved, so now I can go ahead and get, get a divorce. No. The Bible says, hey, look, you stay married. If they be pleased to dwell with you, you stay with them. You stick with it. You stay with that commitment that you make. So make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, oh, I married an unbeliever, so I'm going to go get a divorce. Oh, no, no, no. The Bible says, let her not leave him. The Bible says, let him not put her away. But before you get married, you young people, young children, please be very careful about the person that you decide you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Make sure you don't get yoked up unequally with an unbeliever, unequally with someone who's not spiritual. Look at verse 14. You say, well, why? Why, why do you stay married with an unbeliever? The number one reason you want to stay married with an unbeliever is for your children. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else, you see that word else? It means, he's saying, or else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. He's saying, look, your, your husband, you know, ladies, and we have ladies that come to church by themselves. They have husbands that aren't married, and our hearts go out to you, and we pray for you. But look, your husband may not be taking that spiritual lead, but you, if it weren't for the spiritual, you know, if it weren't for the presence of God within your life in that home, your children may, not be, may be unclean, but now they are holy. I think of Timothy, you know, Paul would tell us of Timothy and he would talk about the faith that was handed out to Timothy and he talks about Timothy's mother and his grandmother, you know, and the great faith that was the heritage of faith that was given to Timothy and Paul never mentions the dad. Paul never mentions that Timothy had a father in his life that was influencing him, that was helping him and I think the reason that the dad's never mentioned is because the dad probably wasn't around. The dad was not interested in the things of God. But he had a grandmother that loved God, and he had a mother that loved God, and they were able to train that young man. And here's the important thing, for those, especially those of you that are raising children single, single moms, you know, and, and, and you don't have a, a spiritual man in the home. Here's what Timothy's mother and grandmother did. They found a godly man by the name of the Apostle Paul, and they took Timothy and said, Here, get under his wing. The best thing you can do for your children is to find a man that loves God and says, hey, spend time with that person. You know, uh, interact with them. Learn, get them around people, other men that love God and that want to be, you know, you've got a daughter, get them around women that love God and that want to serve God and let them influence them. But look, just because there's an unbelieving spouse in the home doesn't mean you can't minister to your children. Just because there's an unbelieving spouse in the home doesn't mean those children can't be raised for the glory of God. He says, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But here's another reason why you don't want to leave an unbelieving spouse is because they might get saved as a result of your presence in their life. Notice verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? He's saying, look, you might be the reason that your unbelieving spouse gets saved. You may be the reason that your unbelieving husband gets saved in 1 Peter. Go with me to the book of 1 Peter. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians. We're going to come right back to it. Keep your place in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you go past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse number 1. Here we have Peter speaking to women, wives again. And he's talking to women that have either unsaved husbands or unspiritual husbands. And notice what he says. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, 
That if any obey not the word, he's saying you, you may have a husband that does not obey the word, does not care what the word says, does not care what the Bible says. If any obey not the word, they also may, notice, without the word be won by the conversation of the wife. Now, in our King James Bible, that word conversation means your lifestyle or the way you carry yourself, the way you live your life. Here's what he's saying. Your husband or your wife may not care what the word says, but they may be won without the word by the lifestyle and the way you carry yourself and the way you live your life of the wife or of the husband. So a reason you want to stay married, you know, don't get this idea, Pastor said, We're not supposed to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, so I'm leaving you, honey, because you won't get saved. That's not the idea, okay? You know, God says, hey, stay with them for the sake of the children. Stay with them for the sake of your spouse. It may be that thou shalt save thy wife. It may be that thou shalt save the husband. But I want you to understand, that's not God's perfect will for your life. Now, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, that's God's will for your life. But if you're not married, and I want to focus on the children the young people. If you're not married... Please, please, please just be very careful about who you vow to spend the rest of your life with. And if the children here won't listen or your parents don't care, I just pray that my children are at least listening right now and saying, yes, marry someone who's saved, who's a believer. But don't get unequally yoked together either. Marry someone who loves God, who's on fire for the things of God, who wants to serve God alongside with you, wants to be a help, not a hindrance. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at verse 10. Let me deal with something that's not popular today. But it's Verity Baptist Church. is what we do. We deal with everything nobody wants to deal with. You want to just learn about the love of God? There's a million churches you could have gotten to. And we preach about the love of God, and we believe in the love of God, but there's a lot more in the Bible than just the love of God. And God, God tells us something here that's not popular, but let's go ahead and deal with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I was reading today in, in the Bible how Paul was talking about, Paul said how I, he, he said that he held back nothing, that he preached the, the whole counsel of God. That's my job as a pastor, is to preach the whole counsel of God, to be instant, in season, out of season. What that means is whether you like it or not, whether it's popular or not, whether it'll, you know, uh, get us, you know, get me on TV or not. That's not my goal. My goal is not to pastor a big church. You know, some of you have the idea, or, you know, do you want to pastor a big church? You know, do you want to build a big church? Jesus said, I will build my church. All right? Jesus did not say, I will build your church. Jesus did not say, you will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church, and I'll, deal, I'll let him deal with the building of it. My job is just to preach the word to be instant, in season, out of season. First Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 10. Notice what the Bible says. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And notice what he says, let not the wife depart from her husband. The Bible teaches that God is not for divorce. The Bible says that when you make a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. When you stand before God and you vow that you will spend the rest of your life with a man or the rest of your life with a woman... Till death do us part. That vow is a serious vow. And that was made to an individual. And that was made before family and friends. But more importantly than all of that, it was made to God, Almighty God. 
And God says we are to keep that vow. God says we are to not break that vow. And listen to me. I know, I know that today 50 to 60% of our society is divorced. I understand that in this room, if we were to do a raise of hands, which we won't, 50 to 60 of you have been divorced. And I'm not trying to pick on you, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Hey, listen to me. If you've been divorced, that's in your past. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, it's a sin like any other sin. Just ask God to forgive you and move on. But I am speaking to those of you that maybe haven't gone down that road yet. Maybe haven't made that mistake yet. And and, and again, maybe the sermon is just for the young people this, this morning. But listen, make sure you think very carefully about the person you vow to spend the rest of your life with. Because God says when you make that vow, defer not to pay it. God says when you make that vow, it's till death do us part. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 7.10. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, you say, well, what if I have to get a divorce? What if I have to separate? And listen to me very carefully. And I understand this is an emotional, tender subject, and I'll do my best to, to, to explain this. There are situations from time to time when a man has to separate from his wife. There are times when a wife has to separate from her husband because of safety issues, because of just it's not safe to be there anymore because it's not safe to have your children there. I I won't deny you that. But listen to what the Bible says. If she depart, if she needs to depart, if she needs to go, here are your options. Let her, number one, remain unmarried. Or, here's number two, be reconciled to her husband. Where does it say, you know, get a profile on Christian Mingle before the divorce goes through? Where, where does it say, you know, go out to the, to the bar and start, you know, uh, you know uh, spreading your wings and, and start meeting people? See, in, in the Bible, marriage is such a, a crucial vow that here's what God says. God says, never break the vow, never get a divorce, never get separated. And he said, if you're in a position where you have to get separated, where you cannot stay, he says, then you must remain unmarried until your spouse dies. Now, here's why you say, well, that's such a big, you know, why, why would he say to do that? Because here's the thing. If it's that bad, if it's that bad of a situation, if a wife that's being abused, children that are being abused, a wife that's being abused is not thinking, now, wait a minute, Pastor. No, I can't. If I do that, then I'm not going to be able to go, you know. They just want to get out of there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, listen, kids. Listen. The, the decision you make of who you will spend the rest of your life with, if you have to say, this is the person I'll spend the rest of my life with, and if I ever have to leave them, I must, if I want to be right with God, if I want to follow what the Bible says, remain unmarried or, or be reconciled into your spouse. Those are your options. If you take that decision seriously, you'll be very careful about how you marry. But here's the problem that I found with most Christians is they just take this decision very lightly. Well, Pastor, you, you don't know. I mean, the car that he drives... I mean, you just, I mean, do you have you, she's just so pretty, and when I look into her eyes, hey, listen to me, listen to me, you're making a vow. You say, well, what if I have to do, I would never, I would never tell a, a, a woman that's being abused to stay in that home. I never would. I'd never, I'd never tell a, a woman to stay with a reprobate. I'd never tell a woman that, to stay with someone that, that could uh, hurt her children, abuse her children. Sexually abuse her children. I've never told a woman that. But here's what I will tell you. Verse 11. But, it, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried. And this is, where we, this is where we separate, you know, reality. 
Because when a woman says, Pastor, it's so bad, I need to leave. And I say, okay, that's fine. You need to leave. But the Bible says you are to remain unmarried. And they don't bat an eye at it. And they say, I understand that, but it's that bad. Then you know it's bad. But when people are already, you know, I've already been working on my profile, and I'm already, you know, looking for a date, and I've already got three dates set up for the next three weeks. You're not that serious about your marriage. You know, it, it must not. If you say, well, I don't know that I can stay unmarried for the rest of my life, then it must not be that bad. I don't think you should preach this. Welcome to Verity Baptist Church. We deal with what people don't like. But look, at some point, at some point, I've been saying this over the last several weeks, at some point you've got to decide, does it even matter what the Bible says? Does it even matter what God says? Are we just here to play games? Are we just here to say, I went to church, I'm spiritual, don't tell me what the Bible says, I want to do whatever I want to do, I just want to feel spiritual. Because look, if that's the game you want to play, I'm not in. I'm here to preach the Bible. I'm here to tell you, here's what the Bible says. Stay married. And if it's that bad, then remain unmarried. And if I can't remain unmarried, then it must not be that bad. Notice what he says. Verse 11. And if she depart, let her remain unmarried. Or be reconciled to her husband. And let, her not, and let not the husband put away his wife. That's what God says. Now skip down to verse 15. I want to deal with verse 15 quickly because... Some of you are already looking at verse 15, and you notice that when I read through verses 12, 13, 14, I skipped 15, and you say, Pastor, skip verse 15, because he doesn't want to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it right now. I skipped that for a reason, because I want to lay that foundation. Look at verse number 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. All right? And people often take this verse and say, see, if they depart, then we're not under bondage. Okay? Now listen to me. When you study the Bible, you must study the Bible within context. You can't just pull out one verse out of context and say, here's what this means. When, when in all of the Gospels, you know, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus said it as many different ways as he could, that a husband should not put away his wife, that a wife should not put away her husband, that if you marry someone who's put away, you're committing divorce, that if you go get, you're committing adultery. When he says it in Romans 7, when he said it in this verse right now, in the same context, said, hey, don't depart, don't divorce, then he can't be contradicting himself. So, so what are you talking about bondage, all right? Now, the word bondage is a reference to an obligation or a service. You study the word bondage throughout the Bible, you'll find that it's associated to an obligation. I'm obligated to do something. In fact, if you find the underlying Greek word that's translated bondage, and you find how the same Greek word is translated in our King James Bible by the King James translators, in other passages, it's translated as the word service or to do service or to perform a service. You say, what is he talking about? Go to verse number 3 of 1 Corinthians 7, and let's look at the context. What is he talking about? In 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the Bible says this. Let the husband render unto the wife. I want you to notice this word, due benevolence. Now, the word due, have you ever had a payment due? Some of you have a payment due right now. Some of you had a payment due a while ago, you know. Now, here's what due means. It means you owe them something. The Bible says when you got married, the husband owes the wife something. What does he owe the wife? Due benevolence. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. I owe my wife something. Benevolence. To love her. To care for her. To, to, be, to, 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 to you know, show her charity and love. And my wife owes that to me. As a married couple, we made that commitment. It is due her, and she is, you know, owes it to me as well. Not just that. Look at verse 4. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. 
Notice verse 5, defraud. When, when do we normally see the word defraud being used? When someone's stealing something? When someone's taking something? Oh, they, they stole my identity. They defrauded me. They, they took something that belongs to me. They took something that was rightfully mine, and they, and they, they kept it from me. Now notice he says, Defried ye not one another, except be, be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan have you not for your incontinency. Now what is he saying? Here's what he's saying, all right? He's saying that a husband owes his wife due benevolence. The wife owes her husband due benevolence. But guess what? You also owe each other a physical relationship. You, you women that use a physical relationship as a way to punish your husbands, you need to get right with God, you stinking Jezebel. I mean, this idea of like, well, I'm just going to, well, I'm mad at you because you wouldn't do this. Or I, so, you know, and look, the Bible says you owe him a physical relationship and she owes you a physical relationship. When you made a vow, guess what you made a vow? To have and to hold. You made a vow and you owe it to each other. You have not used that as a way to punish each other. You know, well, you always have a headache and you always have this and you always have that. And, and here's what he's saying. Don't defraud each other. When a husband keeps love away from his wife, he's defrauding her. When a husband keeps a physical relationship away from his wife to punish her, he's defrauding her. When a wife keeps a physical relationship away from her husband, she's defrauding him. When a wife keeps love and nurture and care away from her husband, she's defrauding him because you are do, it's do your husband. That's the context when we get to 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under right. What is that saying? Hey, listen, ladies, if your husband leaves, you can't stop him. If I, you know, if I go home today and, and, and all my wife's things are gone and I have no idea where she's at, hey, if she departs, she departs. But here's the thing. As soon as someone does leave and as soon as someone does depart, you're no longer under that obligation. Because God tells the wife that she is to submit to her husband. God tells the husband that he, she, he is to love his wife and to lead her properly and to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to love his wife as, as, as we love ourselves. But as soon as someone leaves, I'm no longer, I don't, you know, if your husband leaves, ladies, you don't have to submit to him anymore. He can't just leave for six months and then come back and want to have a physical relationship with you. You don't owe him that anymore. You're not under bondage. That's what he's referring to. He's not saying, go get married to whoever you want. When multiple times throughout the New Testament, he said, if you get married after divorce, you're committing adultery. And you say, oh, I can't believe you're preaching this. I can't believe you say that. It's what the Bible says. And again, I just got to ask this question. Does it even matter what the Bible says? Does it even matter what the Bible says? Let me give some advice for the young people because I've already angered the older people. It doesn't matter. But you young kids... Let me give you some advice. When it comes to marriage, wait. When it comes to marriage, wait. If they are God's will for you today, they will be God's will for you six months from now. You understand what I'm saying? If they're God's will for you today, they will be God's will for you a year from now. But you may find something out about them within a year that you didn't find out within three months. I'm not for these, you know, she's the one, he's the one, two weeks later, we're married. Now listen to me. Listen to me very carefully, okay? And I'm going to maybe open up a little bit. Maybe I, I shouldn't do this. My wife and I got married, and we had a very short engagement. I, I, we got married two weeks after I graduated high school. And it worked out great for me. <laughs> but you know what? And I'll be honest with you, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not 
asking for your, not throwing myself a pity party. Please understand what I'm saying. I honestly, truly believe this. My wife could have married someone much better. She could have had a much better husband. She could have had a much better, uh, you know, uh, husband. But, but she, she rushed into it, and praise the Lord, she rushed into it for me, you know? And you say, well, why did you have to do it that fast? Because before she could change her mind, I need to make it legal, you know? But listen to me. If they're God's will for your life now, they'll be God's will for your life six months from now, eight months from now, a year from now. Wait. 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 Practice separation before you get married so you don't have to go through a separation. Practice biblical separation before you get married so you don't have to go through a divorce. Because some of you are all mad that I'm preaching against divorce, and that's fine. The job of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that's, you want to be mad at me, that's fine. I, I, a lot of people are mad at me. But please, please understand something. I've never met anybody who went through a divorce who said, you know what, that was the greatest time of my life, and I just hope all of my children get to experience. Nobody says that about divorce. Nobody says that about bankruptcy. And yet I get up and preach about marriage, and I get up and preach about finances, and people get upset. I'm just trying to avoid the big, you know, I'm trying to make sure these kids avoid the biggest hassles that happen in life. When someone goes through a divorce, it's a very tragic thing. It's a very hard thing. It's a very emotional time where a lot of are hurt. And if we could just save these young people from, look, I still believe in 2016 that someone can go to an aisle, make a vow to God, and stay married for the rest of their lives. I still believe, like my, my mom and dad just recently celebrated 37 years of marriage. Hey, their marriage isn't perfect. They're, they're not perfect people, but I still believe it can be done. This, in, in June, my wife will celebrate 12 years of marriage. And you know what? 12 years and one day it'll be 22 years and 24 years and 40 years and 60 years. And I believe that you can still be married today and have a relationship that is Christ-honoring to each other and God. Do you believe that? Just because it didn't happen in your life, does that mean we can't encourage others to do it? You know, people say, well, Pastor, I, I got a divorce. I don't think you should ever preach on divorce. If I didn't preach on everything that everybody went through, we wouldn't preach on anything. You guys have a lot of issues. I don't know if you know that. You guys have gone through a lot of things. If I wasn't able to mention everything that you've done, we would just say, all right, well, amen, let's go. <laughs> number two, number one, practice biblical separation in the area of marriage. Number two, Practice biblical separation in the area of fornication or from fornicators. You're there in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're just going to hit everything that people don't like. That's what this series is about. Everything you don't like. Actually, the series isn't everything you don't like. It's everything God doesn't like. And everything that if we want to live a pleasing life to God, we would take heed to. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's shift gears a little bit. We're talking about marriage. Let's talk about fornication. Now, what is fornication? In the Bible, fornication is when a man and a woman have a physical relationship before they are married. Before they make the vows, before they put the ring on the fingers, they have a physical relationship. And in 1 Corinthians 6.15, let me just tell you what the Bible says, because again, people don't preach this today. You're not going to get this from Joel Osteen. You're not going to get, you say, I've never heard anything like this from Charles Stanley. There's a reason why. You don't stay on TV preaching what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Now, the word members means body parts. Know ye not that your bodies are the body parts of members of Christ? Shall I then take the, the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? Harlot referring to like a prostitute? He says, God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? 
For two saith he shall be one flesh. And look, God's not vulgar here and descriptive, but the physical relationship is a man and a woman coming together and becoming one flesh. That's what the Bible refers to it as. as. Look at verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one in spirit. Notice what he says. Here's the context. Verse 18. Flee fornication. He said flee. He said run from it. Run from a physical relationship before marriage. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And listen to me. There's nothing like sexual sin. There's nothing like a physical relationship and sinning within a physical relationship. Every sin you do is outside the body, fornication, you sin against your own body, verse 16. What? And, and this is the question I want to ask some of you. You're like, ah, oh, good night. You're preaching against divorce. Now you're preaching against fornication. Hey, let me ask you this question. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have, God, and ye, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? Don't you know your body doesn't belong to you? I mean, are you saved this morning? You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you this morning? Guess what? That's not your body. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Verse 20, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are not yours, God's. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First first thing I want you to understand about fornication is this. Fornication is a sin. Today, people don't preach against this. Having a physical relationship before marriage is a sin. Shacking up And living together before you're married is a sin. Fornication is a sin. God says, flee fornication. God says, run from it. And let me show you how much God hates fornication. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. God killed twenty-three thousand people in one day. For what sin? Fornication. For having a physical relationship before marriage. Now, keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians, but go with me to the book of Numbers, Numbers 25. Let me give you an example. Numbers 25, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 25. Numbers 25, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Now, there's some debate as to what 1 Corinthians 10.8 is referring to because there's actually multiple times, there's a couple of times in the Old Testament where God killed a huge section of people because of fornication. Some people believe it's referring to when Moses went up to the mount and they had that idol and they rose up to play. Uh, I personally think it's probably referring to the, to the story that we're going to uh, read right now, Numbers 25. And either way, the, the point's the same. But I want you to notice what the Bible says in Numbers 25, verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, I want you to get the picture. Moses and his leaders are before the tabernacle, which is the house of God. They're on their knees weeping to God because God has sent a plague that is killing the people because of fornication, because they are committing fornication with these Moabitish women. The men are, verse 7. And I'm I'm sorry, look, look, look at verse 6 again. And then you've got a guy who basically picks up a girl in front of Moses and enters into a tent to commit fornication as Moses is sitting there praying that God would forgive the nation. You've got this guy just basically performing this sin and going on his way to perform this sin in front of him. Look at verse 7. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest. Now, Phinehas is a preacher. He's a priest. He's a spiritual leader. Some of you think, like, Pastor Jimenez, you're kind of rough and you're kind of mean. Tell, tell me how rough and how mean I am when you look at what Phinehas does. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. 
Javelin is a short spear that you would use to thrust or throw. Look at verse 8. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. They were, they were together. They were committing fornication. He throws a javelin through their belly. I, I never heard Rick Warren tell this story. <laughs> so the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. And you say, well, in, in, in 1 Corinthians it said it was 3 and 20,000. In 1 Corinthians it's 3 and 20,000 in one day. I believe 23,000 died in one day and another 1,000 died you know, from the plague maybe the next day or, or within a short amount of time. Look at verse 10. How does God feel about this? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. It made God happy to see him take such, such actions. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. And I'm not saying I'm a, I'm, you know, don't get scared. I'm going to show up to your house with a javelin in my hand. You're like, don't answer the door. <laughs> Pastor's here, okay? But here's the point that I want you to make. This is how God feels about fornication. He's angry about it. He's mad about it. He doesn't think it's a light issue. In fact, he's so upset about it that he tells us to separate ourselves from fornicators. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse number 1. First Corinthians, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 1. Again, let me t- teach you something that most churches don't teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Paul's dealing with the church at Corinth, which is a very sinful church. And he says, it is reported commonly that there is, notice these words, fornication among you. He said, in your congregation, in your church, there's fornication happening among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might, I want you to make note of these words, underline these words in your Bible, be taken away from among you. He said there's fornication among you. And he said you should have mourned and, and you should have taken it away from among you. For I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that had, done, that had so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul is praying for this young man. You don't want to be on Paul's prayer list. He, he's, he's saying, I'm going to pray for this young man, and here's my prayer, that Satan would destroy his flesh, that the spirit may be saved. That's how bad fornication is. That's how bad this sin is. Notice what he says, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And that's how it always goes. It's so hard. To get people to do right. It's so hard to get people to read nine chapters a day. It's so hard to get people to, to you know, go soul winning. It's so hard to get people to show up to church, to go, show up on Sunday night a second time, to show up on Wednesday night a, a third time in the week. It's so hard. But it's so easy to spread liberalism and spread false doctrine. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. Look at verse 7. What do you do? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. The, pur- the word purge means to get rid of. He says, purge out therefore the eleven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Verse 8, therefore let us 
keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you, now, now listen, look, look at it, verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. The word company means to be in company. It's talking about being together, to gather yourself, to hang out with. He says, I told you not to company with fornicators. Now, again, are we supposed to just leave the entire world? We're supposed to be like Amish, go out, find some land in Nebraska, and build up a big wall, and we'll just all live there and be holy and righteous? No, notice what the Bible says. Verse 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. He said, I'm not talking about the fornicators of this world. He said, if you had to separate yourself from the fornicators of this world, you couldn't go anywhere. Because that's what the world does. They fornicate. That's what the world does. They shack up. That's what the world does. But that's not how Christians ought to live their lives. You ought to live a separated life. You ought to be different. Notice what he says. But now I have written to you not to keep company, if any man that is called... I'm sorry, look, look at verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. And by the way, it's not just fornication. He says, or with covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. If you're trying to separate yourself from fornicators, from people that are covetous, from people that are idolaters, you'd have to quit your job. You'd have to move to a different neighborhood. You'd have to get... He said, then you would have to come out of the world. He's like, he said, that's not what I'm talking about. Verse 11, though, but now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. So look, if, if, if someone comes into church and they're called a brother, meaning they have a testimony of being saved, they're a believer, they're saved. He says, don't company with that person if a brother be a fornicator. And by the way, it's not just fornication or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard. We're talking about that last week or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. He said, don't even get together and eat with them when they're living in these sins. And here's what you got to understand. Going to church and being part of a church family is not a right. It is a privilege. You get the privilege to be part of a community of believers that want to serve God. You don't get to just say, well, I'm going to be a drunk, and I'm going to be a drug addict, and I'm going to be a fornicator, and I'm going to be living a filthy life, and then I'm going to come to church and be part of the community. You say, well, why wouldn't you allow that? Because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And look, I don't want my kids growing up thinking it's normal or it's right to just shack up with someone you're not married with. I'm trying to protect your kids and my kids. And he said, look, look verse 12. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. He said, don't worry about them that are without. He said, God will judge them. Just worry about the ones that are within, the church. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. The Bible teaches that if you are a fornicator, and that you should not be part of our church. That we should kick you out. Physically remove you. Say, you're not allowed to come. You're not allowed to be part of this congregation. It's not your right. It's a privilege to be part of a congregation that serves and honors God. And when I preach this, people go, Pastor Jimenez, what am I supposed to do? Oh, no, I've been living in fornication. Okay, let me help you out. It's not that difficult, all right? Here are your options, all right? Number one, you can get right with God. Are you there in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. People act like, oh, this is so, I'm living, I'm living right now with someone that I'm not married to. What am I supposed to do? I'll, I'll explain to you what you have to do. You can do it on Monday morning. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Notice what it says. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a great place to start. A man should not touch a woman. Don't touch a woman you're not married to. Don't, don't be giving hugs to each other, greeting each other with hugs at Verity Baptist Church. Men, you, if you're a man, you hug a man. 
you're a woman, hug a woman. But it's not for good for a man to touch a woman. Nevertheless, verse 2, to avoid fornication. Here we go. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Pastor man, what do I do? I'm, I'm living in fornication. Number one, you can get right with God and just go get married. Or number two, you can, you know, stop fornicating. <laughs> Move out. Just stop doing it. You know, you can get right by stop fornicating. You can get married. And if you don't want to do either one of those, then here's your third option. You need to get out of this church because we don't want you here and we don't need you here. You say, well, that's not unloving. A little leaven, leaven up the whole lump. You get right with God and we'll welcome you right in. But if you just want to live in sin, you just want to live in drunkenness, you just want to live in fornication, you just want to live in the way that, the, that, the, that God describes, hey, get out of the church. It's not worth having you around because a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. And we don't need your little leaven. My kids are too valuable to me. And your kids are too valuable to me. And I'd rather just, I'd rather, you say, well, your church isn't going to grow like this. My job's not to grow a church. My job's to help you grow in Christ and grow closer to God. So you can get right or you can get married or you can get out. So what do you do? Number one, in the practice of biblical separation, we want to practice separation in the area of marriage. Number two, when it comes to biblical separation, we want to, Practice separation in the area of fornication. And, and by the way, do you still believe that you can raise young people that are pure and love God? I mean, do you still believe that you can raise a generation of young people that will walk down an aisle and be pure and be virgin and be clean and be able to say, I've kept myself for my wife and I've kept myself for my husband and I'm going to make a vow here that I'm taking seriously and I'm not just doing this flippantly. I prayed and I've waited and I've counseled and I'm serious about what I'm about to do. Can, do you still believe we can raise that generation? I believe that. I believe it can be done. But it's not going to be done by just getting up here and preaching these little watery, flowery sermons. It'll be done when a man of God stands up like Phineas and says, Hey, that's a sin. Let's not live that way. And then these kids will grow up saying, I'm worth something. There's value to me. Young ladies, please listen to me. There's value to your body. Don't let some guy just use you and abuse you. He's not willing to put a ring on your finger. He's not willing to make a commitment to your life. He's not willing to say, I love you, but he wants to... Get you in the bed? There's value to you. There's value to your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Why don't you have value to it? Why don't you say, you know, some guy wants to touch you, punch him in his nose. If your teacher gets mad, say, my pastor told me I I was allowed to. Give him a church invitation. They want to call me. Don't let, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Let them put their dirty, filthy hands on you. You say, hey, go get a job. Go get a car. Go get an apartment. Show me you can make something of yourself and we'll talk. Pastor said, if you're God's will for my life now, you'll be God's will for my life when you have a job. You'll be God's will for my life when you've got some money in the bank. Can you still raise a generation of young people that love God? I believe you can. Number one, practice biblical separation in the area of marriage. Number two, practice biblical separation in the area of fornication. Number three, practice biblical separation in the area of friendships. Go to me to the book of Proverbs. We're almost done. Proverbs chapter number 13. If you open your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. Right next to the book of Psalms, you got the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter number 13. Proverbs chapter number 13, look at verse 20. Proverbs chapter number 13 and verse 20. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Practice biblical separation in the area of friendships. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Notice what the Bible says. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. 
He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Now I want you to notice this. Proverbs 13, 20 says, if you walk with people that are wise, you will be wise. Now compare that to Proverbs 22. Go to Proverbs 22, look at verse 24. Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs 22, verse 24. Notice what the Bible says. Proverbs 22, verse 24. Make no friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man thou shalt not go. Why? Why don't you want to make friendships with an angry man? Why don't you want to make, go? Why don't you want to go hang out with a furious man? Verse 25. Lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. See, the Bible teaches this principle that you will be like your friends. You will be like your friends. You walk with wise men, you'll be wise. You walk with angry men, you'll be angry. You'll learn this, this phrase. And you know this. We all grew up hearing the, the, the old quote, birds of a feather flock together. You will be like your friends. Someone said this, show me who your friends are and I'll show you who you are. They, they've statistically proven this. And I've never actually done this. You know, if you want to do this with me, uh, we can do it after the service. I think it'd be fun. But they've statistically proven this. If you take your five closest friends, find out what their annual incomes are, add them by five, and then divide that by five, so get the average annual income of your friends, you will find your average income. Because you hang out with people that are like you, or you become like people that are like you. Some of you are broke because you hang out with broke people. Some of you are unspiritual because you hang out with unspiritual people. Some of you are worldly because you hang out with worldly people. And some of you love God and love the things of God and love the, the Bible and love soul winning and love church and love spiritual things because you hang out with spiritual people. You will be like your friends. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Go to Proverbs 27. Look at verse 17. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpeneth iron. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friends. Find friends that will make you better. Find friends that will make you better. You, hang, you will become like the people you hang out with. You want to find friends that are going to make you better, that are going to make you more like Jesus Christ. Find spiritual friends. Go to Proverbs 27, verse 9. Proverbs 27, verse 9. You're there in Proverbs 27, 17. Just go down to Proverbs 27. Look at verse 9. Notice what the Bible says. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart, so that the sweetness of a man's friend, notice, friend, by hearty counsel. Your friends are going to give you counsel. They're going to give you advice. And if they're wise, they'll give you wise advice. And if they're foolish, they'll give you foolish advice. And you'll probably do what your friends tell you to do. And you'll be foolish if you have foolish friends. You'll be wise if you have wise friends. You'll be spiritual if you have spiritual friends. And you'll be worldly if you have worldly friends. Go to verse 6, same chapter, Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, a good friend is the one that will tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. A good friend is not the one that will just watch you mess up your life and just not say anything. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, the best friend you ever had was Pastor Jimenez, and you don't even know it. 
Every time you come to church, you're like, man, pastor, every time you say, it's like you're, you're hurting me. It's like you're wounding me. Hey, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Someone that loves you will tell you you're going the wrong direction. You're making the wrong decision. You're going the wrong way. Someone who just stands by and says, hey, let me preach the 33rd sermon on love and make sure you put money in the offering plate. That person doesn't care about you. Faithful, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Find friends that will make you better. And that's why I think that your friends ought to be, uh, you know, your, the majority of your friends in your social life ought to be surrounded with the house of God and the people of God. I think you ought to come to Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I think you ought to go soul winning. I think you ought to show up for every activity, every, everything that's ever going on at church. You ought to just, you know, live your life in that way. When I was growing up, my mom and dad had a rule. If the doors of the house of God are ever open, we will be there. No matter what's going on, we will go. We will always be around God's people. Why? Because when you hang out with God's people, you act like God's people. Because when you hang out with wise people, you act like wise people. And some of you are acting like a bunch of fools because the only person you have around is a bunch of fools. And the only advice you get is foolishness. And by the way, let me go ahead and say this. Just because someone comes to church doesn't mean they're a good influence. Just because they come to church doesn't mean it's a good influence. You know why we're a family-integrated church and we don't put our children into a Sunday school class with some adult that we, don't, that we barely know? You know why? Because not everybody that comes to church is a good person. And I love you all, but I don't trust any of you with my kids. And I love you all, but I'm not going to put you in a room by yourself with other people's children. Why? Because I don't really know you. And you don't really know me. But guess what? Your kids are never in a room with me by myself. And neither is your wife. And neither is anybody. And that's how we've structured our church because sometimes bad people, bad influences come to church. And be mindful of that. And realize that. Don't just have this blanket, you know, my kid's going to hang out with anybody in the church, you know, any other kids. Hey, realize just because they come to church doesn't mean they're not doing bad things, doesn't mean they don't have bad influences, doesn't mean they're not, you know, going to tempt them to do bad things. Everybody needs to be mindful of that. Just realize that. Just remember that. Go to Proverbs 18. Look at verse 24. It's the last verse we'll look at. Proverbs 18, verse 24. Proverbs 18, verse 24. The key to developing friends. Key to developing friends. Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. People come to me all the time and say, Pastor Jimenez, you know, I really like your church. I really like your preaching. But I don't feel like I really have a lot of friends, and I don't know that I'm going to stick around because I don't have a lot of friends. And I don't, I don't say this exactly in these words, but I, I want to say to these people, think to myself, like, you, you show up once every six months, and you expect to develop some friends. Guess what? You'll develop more friends the more you show up to church. I mean, if you, you come to church, you sit like a bump on a log, you don't talk to anybody, you show up late, you leave early, you never, you know, seek any relationship, and then you're like, I wonder why I don't have any friends. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. Let me ask you this. Does everybody always have to come to you to greet you, or do you ever get up to greet somebody? Does everybody always have to come to you to befriend you? Do you ever get up and befriend somebody? You know people that have the most friends are the ones that are the friendliest. I don't know. I don't have any more friends. I don't have any friends. Let me explain to you why you don't have any friends. You're not very friendly. That's why. A man that has friends must show himself friendly. But you know what's hard about being friendly is it's work. It requires work. It requires work to remember people's names. 
It requires work to go up to someone you don't know and smile and say, how you doing? Glad you're here. It's easier to not do that. But a friend that, a man that has friends must show himself friendly. And when you show yourself friendly, you'll find a friend that, is, that sticketh closer than a brother. So what we learn about separation this morning? Number one, in the practice of biblical separation, we, would pra- we should practice it in the area of marriage. Number two, we should practice it in the area of fornicators. And number three, we should practice it in the area of our friendships. Don't be friends with worldly people. You don't want to fornicate young people? Don't be friends with fornicators. You don't want to be a drug addict? Don't be friends with drug addicts. You don't want to be an alcoholic? Don't be friends with alcoholics. You want to have money? Have friends that have money. And I'm not saying that you ask them for money. That's not what I said. I'm saying, you know, just get around people that are responsible. Figure out what they do with their money, and you do the same thing. Get around wise people, and you'll be wise. Get around fools, you'll be foolish. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.